Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. Okay, Bettys, I wanted to do a deep dive into light and circadian biology and some other strategies as a means to improve sleep. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Now, I have talked about this in my book, The Betty Body. It's actually the biggest chapter in the entire book is sleep and sex. (laughs) Now, we will shelf the sex for a moment, even though that's very, very important. But I want to speak specifically around the idea of being a great sleeper. And when we look at women over the over their lifespan, we often see that there are times in their life where they are great sleepers. And then there are opportunities or there are instances where their sleep is disrupted. Now, for example, myself, that I've always known that I've had the capacity to be a great sleeper, but there's been times in my life where I practiced really, really terrible sleep habits. So case in point, in my university uh, years and in my uh, professional college years, uh, for one, there were many an all-nighter that were pulled, many, many days living on coffee. And of course, for many women, when we become mothers, so when we are pregnant and then in the years thereafter where children do not have their own circadian uh, biology yet set and they are up multiple times during the night, um, it can really be quite disruptive, primarily to the mother. I mean, we know that both men and women are, you know, it's it's improving, but if the woman is breastfeeding, we know that this is primarily going to fall on the shoulders of the woman. So, you know, all nighters for the exams for, I remember board exams. I don't think I slept for like three days straight. And then I think I crashed after that for, I can't, it was like 50 hours or something after boards were done. Uh, of course, breastfeeding, I, I breastfed, um, both my children for what would be considered extended breastfeeding for multiple years. Um, 
And now in where I am in my life, my children are older, so they have a more established circadian rhythm where they are sleeping through the night. I no longer pull all nighters. However, I am in what I would call or, you know, I would classify as early perimenopause, right? So I, if I'm not watching my sleep habits or some of the things that we're going to discuss today, I can now start to see my sleep becoming more disturbed. There can be more aggravation in both the initiation and maintenance of my sleep. And I wanted to really talk about some of the things that you can do that's really easy um, that can improve your sleep. Because I think that there's a lot of information out there about sleep. And I think that it's come to this point where there's almost this perverse anxiety around sleep. Like we all feel like we're not performing well. We all feel like we're not doing sleep the way that we should. And there's, I think that there's a lot more, you know, we'll call it performance anxiety uh, than there should be. And I think that when we talk about sleep, we also have to have a discussion of the waking state, like some of the things that we do when we are awake, that is going to, in some ways, determine when we fall asleep, how easily we fall asleep, and whether or not we maintain that sleep. So let's, let's kind of, let's dive into that. So when we think about, um, you know, it, it, let's say if you were to go to the doctor and, um, you know, let's say you have some metabolic indicators that maybe you have like pre-metabolic syndrome, you're pre-diabetic or something. And your physician says to you, okay, you know what you should do? You should eat less and exercise more. Like, what do we want to do to that doctor? We want to throat punch them, right? It's like, thanks. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) There needs to be a change, but what exactly are the specific changes that I need to be adopting Or, you know, in the reverse, what are the habits that I need to stop engaging in, in order to improve my sleep? So I'd be so bold to suggest that you, um, and very, very few of my Bettys that are listening to this are consistently getting the sleep that you need. So you're not necessarily waking up and feeling rested and feeling refreshed and your ability to focus is constant through the day without any dips in either energy or, or, you know, the experience of brain fog. And If that is true, which I suspect that it is for most of you, we're going to unpack some of the circadian science around better sleep. So we're going to talk specifically around light, timing of light. We're going to talk about nutrition. We're going to talk about central oscillators, peripheral oscillators, sunrise and sunset, and all the goodies um, that we can do to help um, understand and manipulate what governs the timing of the onset of sleep. And of course, how we can improve our quality. You are all goddesses and you all deserve amazing sleep every night. Okay. So paradoxically where we're going to start is waking. Okay. So I know that a lot of people think, okay, she just talked about sleep, but now she's talking about being awake. We're going to talk about some of the things that we can do from the moment that we wake up that can begin to perpetuate great sleep. So again, in the, in the Betty body, uh, I talk about this, um, hormone called adenosine. Okay. Now adenosine 
is um, the more adenosine that you have, the sleepier you will feel. So this is something that has been referred to as sleep pressure. So adenosine, as it increases in concentration in the body, which it does over our waking hours, it will build up. So the longer that we're awake, the more adenosine that we are going to have. And adenosine should actually be almost absent when we first rise up, when we first awake, because sleep, one of the functions that it does is it will remove adenosine from the adenosine receptor and effectively inactivate the cascade that happens once that receptor is activated. So if you have just slept for, let's say eight or nine hours, adenosine is going to be very low, both in your brain and in your body. And as you've, you know, as the day progresses, once you've been awake for 12 hours, for 16 hours, you know, adenosine levels are going to naturally build up. And so this pressure is going to increase for you to fall asleep. And the reason, this is the, one of the reasons why we get sleepy in the evening, because you've been, you know, up for a while and now adenosine is occupying and activating this adenosine receptor. Now it's worth noting here, and it's, a, it's worth, it's an honorable mention that um, one of the most, we are, as a society, we are interfering with the adenosine receptor. And my, one of my patients used to refer to it as by consuming hot brown water. So of course we're talking about coffee here, hot brown water. And of course the main component of a cup of coffee is going to be caffeine. Now, caffeine is not just in coffee. It's in a number of foods. It's in teas. It's in sodas. You shouldn't be drinking sodas, but it's in soda. Chocolate. There's a lot of caffeine in chocolate as well. And one of the reasons that you might feel alert and awake and energized after consuming coffee is because it's actually interfering with the activation of this adenosine receptor. And actually caffeine is called an adenosine antagonist because it competes with adenosine. It can, it can temporarily, and it does temporarily occupy the adenosine receptor so that that sleep pressure, that pressure to feel drowsy and, you know, put your head down, um, does not accumulate. And so, of course, when caffeine is sort of sitting in that adenosine receptor, we still have adenosine amalgamating in the background, but now the receptor is not being activated and it cannot engage in those normal, you know, cellular functions that will make the cell and, you know, you (laughs) sleepy. And this is actually one of the reasons why many of us will feel this huge energetic crash because once the caffeine wears off, we have, we still have this adenosine that has been accumulating in the body and the brain. And at the time when caffeine was sitting in that adenosine receptor, the adenosine had nowhere to go. Right. But once the caffeine is like, okay, I'm kind of done here. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm done. All of a sudden you can flood the adenosine receptors with that adenosine, which will make you feel drowsy, will make you feel sleepy. So this might seem like it's knocking, uh, kind of a knock on that hot brown water, but, um, I can tell you that 
I love my hot brown water and I am not giving it up. Uh, it has been shown uh, to have a myriad of health benefits. Um, it's, you know, potent antioxidant, helps with dopamine, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, lots of other things. But we can, if you are like me and you love your hot brown water, we can we can be strategic about the consumption of caffeine so as to give us that alertness during the day that we need, but not to interrupt the sleep and the drowsiness when it's time to start winding down at the end of the day. Now, as I mentioned, caffeine increases a neurotransmitter, a neuromodulator that we call dopamine, right? So I've talked about dopamine in the past. Dopamine tends to be our, you know, pleasure neurotransmitter. It helps us feel good. It helps us feel focused, passionate, engaged. It gives us a lot of energy. So dopamine, you know, if you've ever had a to-do list and you finish, you know, you check off and you finish off, let's say two or three items off of your to-do list. And you're like, God, that feels good to get that done. Well, the reason why it feels good is because you are bathing some of your cells in dopamine. And it's also the neurotransmitter that can be abused in, um, in social media when we're kind of constantly looking for likes, et cetera. So this is like the, it makes us feel focused, engaged, passionate, and gives us um, you know, energy and dopa- caffeine increases dopamine, which is why we feel so good when we have a nice cuppa, right? A nice cup of co- a nice cuppa is how the, how my British uh, Bettys would say it, right? But nice cup of coffee. And just to complete this picture of the stimulatory effects of caffeine, we also want to talk about epinephrine. So dopamine, um, well, actually, let's just talk about the word epinephrine. So whenever I say adrenaline or epinephrine, I'm actually talking about the same uh, chemical structure. So epinephrine, if we just break it down, because I'm a word nerd and I, I love to teach. So epi means like above. So if you've ever heard the term epigenetics, it's above the gene, right? And I talk a lot about epigenetic modulators like nutrition and fitness, Caffeine is an epigenetic modulator, but when we look at epinephrine, so nef, the root word N-E-P-H, nef, is the root, is the word that uh, is used when we are talking about the kidney. So epinef really literally means above the kidney. So for those of you that remember your anatomy, what is the gland that sits right above the kidney? It is our adrenal glands. So adrenaline, you can see how that word adrenaline and epinephrine are actually referring to the same compound. Now, the trick is, of course, that um, epinephrine is produced Uh, like these are homologous structures, um, but we have epinephrine that's produced in the brain as well. But whenever we're talking about epinephrine, whenever we're talking about adrenaline, this is the same compound, right? And it gives us energy. So we know that caffeine inhibits the adenosine receptor. It increases dopamine. It's our feel good, passionate, engaged and focused module. And it also uh, a mo- uh, molecule, pardon me. And it also increases our epinephrine, right? So this is going to give us that 
energy. And it can also be lipolytic as well. So again, that just basically means that when you consume caffeine, particularly on an empty stomach, but this can happen all through the day, it will tend to, it will tend to break down your adipose tissue um, into that triacylglycerol so that you can then, um, or I should say it, the fat cell is broken down, the TAG, the triacylglycerol is broken down into uh, the glycerol and then the fatty acids that are used for energy. So why do we care? Why am I spending so much time on caffeine? Well, when we think about caffeine, um, it has a half-life of about six hours. And this is really, this is critical to understand as it relates to sleep. Now, there are going to be some polymorphisms or genetic variances here. So when some people metabolize caffeine, they will metabolize it much quicker than others. Now you, um, you'll need to, in order to know how you metabolize caffeine, this is done through genetic testing. And I happen to be one of those freaks who can have a cup of coffee at 4 PM and I can fall asleep without any, I used to be able to fall asleep without any issue. I find that that's changing a little bit now, but for the majority of the population, it'll take about six hours generally to degrade caffeine in the brain and the body by about half. So let's just work a little bit of math here. So let's say you have a, you know, shot of espresso, a cup of coffee. Let's say you have it at 12 PM. So if we know that the half-life of caffeine is about six hours then six hours later, so at 6 PM, you are still going to have half of the coffee or half of the caffeine rather circulating and affecting those adenosine receptors. So if we take another half life cycle, so half of six hours is going to be three, right? So three hours later at 9 PM, we still have a quarter of that caffeine in the system and running through another half life cycle, one and a half hours later, 1030 PM, you're going to have about an eighth of that caffeine still occupying and that have, having that antagonistic effect to those receptors. So this is usually the, whenever I'm counseling women on caffeine consumption, um, especially for those of you like myself who refuse to give it up, 12 o'clock, just kind of doing that math is about the latest that I will have a cup of coffee. Because if you continue to inhibit that, uh, that adenosine receptor well into the night, so even at 12 o'clock, you know, um, if you're having at 12 o'clock at 9 PM, you still have about, you know, 25%, um, of that caffeine still in your system. That's about the time that you really should be winding down you know, and the math obviously gets worse the later that you have coffee. So let's say that you have, you know, most, most women uh, will report some kind of energetic lull somewhere between two and three PM, two and 4 PM really most, you know, it's sort of like a couple hours after lunchtime. So a lot of people will get a cup of coffee around two or three o'clock in the afternoon. So if we think about ingesting coffee at three, right? assuming that the half-life is still six hours, then at 9 PM, which is six hours later, you have 50% of your caffeine inhibiting those adenosine receptors. And again, moving through, like moving all through that thought experiment, three hours later, another half cycle, uh, which is going to be, um, what that would be at midnight, really like three hours later after 9 PM at midnight, you're going to have 25% of that coffee still kind of mucking about and, and gumming up the adenosine receptor. 
And then further at 1.30 a.m., another half cycle, you're going to have an eighth of that 3 p.m. coffee still acting on these receptors. So, you know, if you're not pulling an all-nighter, um, I would generally think it would be wise to think about when your last cup of coffee might be in the day, right? Because you can still, as you can see, when you sort of walk through how coffee is, is degraded over time, you can still have this sort of blast radius effect, if you will, of caffeine long into your sleeping hours if, if you're not careful. Now, if you are someone who has pulled an all-nighter, right? If for those of you uh, who are students, I know we have a lot of uh, students that listen to the pod, uh, or if you're a mother, you know, new mother, or a mother at least with young children, you may have noticed something particular. I remember thinking this was like crazy when I would spend all night studying for my human anatomy exam or whatever it was. And I thought I was just going to die at like two or three in the morning. I thought I, I might, I just might die. And then if my exam was early in the morning, let's say I had an 8 a.m. exam or a 9 a.m. exam or something, there was this peculiar um, shift that happened as morning rolled around. You know, even though... I didn't have the appropriate length or duration of sleep and I was up most of the night cranking myself up on coffee. I actually felt way more alert and way like this bump in energy in the morning. And it would, if I had my exam at eight or nine in the morning, I could sort of carry on and write the exam. If I had an exam at like one or two in the afternoon, I was toast. Um, and this, the reason why that's happening for my all nighters, for the, my, you know, my students and my mothers uh, who may be up most of the night, it sounds crazy, right? Because, you know, you, the, your logic might say, well, wait a minute, you know, my, my adenosine is building and building and building. Why is this happening? But this is because of our, circula our circadian clock, right? So there's sort of another mechanism that comes into play. And that is that our circadian clock is strongly going to determine how and when we want to be awake and how and when we should be sleepy. So regardless of how well you slept at night, or whether you were up all night or your sleep was disturbed all night, most people, because we are not nocturnal animals, most people will tend to wake up around the time that the sun rises and that it might not be exactly at sunrise, but let's call it, you know, an hour or two on either end of, of sunrise. And we do this, the, the reason why this happens is in part from the sympathetic nervous system revving up. So our sympathetic nervous system, uh, if you recall from previous uh, Geeky Magics, we've talked about this idea of this being our fight or flight um, part of our nervous system. It really revs up our systems. Um, and in particular, cortisol um, is a hormone that is it very high in the morning. And when we look at the circadian pattern of cortisol, the way that it should actually map out if we were to, you know, do an X and a Y axis, let's say, where the X axis is the delta T and the Y axis is the concentration, it should look something like a ski slope. And that is to say that it should be highest in the morning 
and then it should slowly decrease uh, over the course of the day. Now, of course, there's going to be moments in the day where you may, you know, if you have to slam on the brakes or something, or, um, you know, some, someone at work sends a belligerent email or a client or whatever, you may see transient increases in cortisol, but the overall arc of cortisol during the day should be, it should look like a, a ski slope. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And, you know, as evening approaches, it should be relatively low in concentration. We shouldn't be revved up and ready to go in the evening. We should be slowing down. The system should be slowing down. We should be getting that sleep pressure um, increasing. And cortisol, when we think about it, it has effects on the entire body, right? It increases your heart rate. It activates your muscles. It actually preferentially throws energetic substrate into the musculoskeletal system. And the point here is that as it relates to your sleep, it's important that your cortisol uh, curve like that that in that apex of that cortisol secretion comes early in the day or at least at least like the earliest part in your uh, you know in the period of wakefulness that you have and if it's not high if you don't have that apical if you don't have that apex of cortisol right when you wake up it's going to make it very difficult for you to get out of bed you know your brain might feel like it's in a fog you may feel like you want to go back to sleep so and i know that many of you can really relate to that that it's hard to get out or it's hard to get out of bed sometimes in the beginning of the day and normal physiology dictates that we should be able to kind of bounce out of bed. I mean, maybe you're not like jumping around and doing, you know, burpees, you know, the, the second that you get out of bed, but you should be able to get up and feel refreshed and like start, you know, start getting your day going and warming up your joints appropriately, et cetera. So if this is you where you're, you're feeling bagged, like you feel like a sack of potatoes and you can't, you know, get out of bed. And of course, we're assuming here that you're not a shift worker. Um, you're not a teenager because we see sort of this phase shift with um, teenage years, which, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, one of the best things that you can do is in terms of strategies for improving your sleep the next night is to get access to early morning sunlight. And this is the light that comes from sunlight, you know, an hour or two on either side of sunrise. This is when we have a lot of blue light coming from the sun. And that's not to say that the light itself is blue, but it is the wavelength. It is the, when the sun is very low in the horizon, 
um, this is going to strongly activate, we'll talk about some of the structures in the brain uh, in a moment, but this is going to strongly activate your brain to wake up and it's going to help with that cortisol pulse. And I should say that this doesn't mean look out your window. Okay. Uh, or look out through, you know, if you're driving in a car, let's say around that time to look through a windshield, like that's not going to do it. We know that windows and windshields, they will decrease the concentration of the light. And we measure light, um, by units of lux. Okay. So, which is, um, just the amount of light that is being perceived, um, in this case by the eye, by the, by the ganglionic cells in, in the, in the retina. So this is important because a lot of us, a lot of you might be thinking, well, yeah, like I have a South facing or an East facing room and I'll go there and, you know, the light's really bright, but it's not the same as getting out in actual nature. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm, I'm a city girl, so, you know, if I can stay inside, I will, but there, this is one of the strongest arguments for actually getting out into the wild, you know, wherever that is, if that's the urban jungle or that is the rural jungle, you know, wherever you are actually getting outside because your eyes, you know, they're, which are extent, like they're essentially an extension of your brain. That's what your eyes are. It's kind of fun to think about it that way, but they are, they're an extension of your brain. This is the way that we are going to improve your sleep. And by exposing your eyes to natural sunlight, this is going to really strongly activate um, via, via the retinal uh, ganglionic cells, an area in the body or in the brain rather called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Now we'll get there, um, but I can already sense questions, you know, so a lot of you, depending on where you are in the world may have different exposure to morning light. So, uh, many of you know, I live in Toronto. This is a densely populated city, lots of tall buildings, uh, potentially that can block out the sunlight. Um, you know, other cities that sort of come to mind might be London, you know, it has like this persistent, sometimes persistent overcast weather. And, you know, if you're living in New York or, or you know, wherever it is, these, when you live in sort of a densely populated center or you are obstructed, um, by the light or even places where, you know, as you move North, the amount of sunlight exposure, um, is, is reduced. What this means for you is that you will need to spend more time outdoors. So yes, <laughs> my urban jungle dwellers, you're going to actually need to leave your home <laughs> in the, in the morning, um, because you are going to need to, uh, you're going to need to stimulate the retina in order to drive this activation of the suprachiasmatic nucleus more so than someone who might live in a Southern climate, right. Or maybe lives near the equator or someone who lives maybe on the water or has access to natural sunlight. And when we're talking about luck, so I mentioned this as a unit of measurement. Um, I have, um, I was really, I, I actually measured the amount of lux in each of my rooms. So I, I have a living room where I grow all my plants on the windowsill. It's super bright. And when I measured this room, it was only 1500 lux, uh, which is shocking. Um, you need a minimum of 10,000 lux to really activate these retinal ganglion cells. Um, that will go on and then, you know, talk to the suprachiasmatic nucleus in, in the brain. 
And the blue light is really important. Like I know everyone poo poos on blue light. We're all wearing blue blockers all the time, but this is, you know, this early morning light um, is the time to, if you're, of course, if you're able to, uh, assuming that you don't have any, you know, any eye conditions that would, um, preclude you from this, but you really want to take your sunglasses off and get your blue light in. And the reason why it's actually important to get a really big dose of Lux is the retina is actually quite light insensitive, insensitive at the beginning of the day um, versus in the evening where it's actually more light sensitive. And we'll talk about this in, in a few moments about why being on your devices later on in the evening can be very deleterious. But you need this big dose of sunlight in the morning um, to help activate, uh, to help get the retina sort of over its, its inertia, if you will. And I remember, you know, I was, um, in my internship, um, I was interning at a hospital and I was, um, there was this one particular patient who, uh, I was caring for and she had, you know, severe episodic depression. And that of course came with a, you know, myriad of other issues. She had digestive issues, muscular pain, you know, poor tolerance to temperature changes. And the, the resident doctor that I was working with at the time, uh, I remember reviewing my, her case with him and I remember asking him like, what are uh, like, you know, I had given her like the exercise protocols and I'd given her the nutrition and these seemed to be really hard for her to implement. And I was, you know, supplements and this and that. And I was saying like, what can I give this patient that can help move the needle for her? That's simple. That doesn't require this really big learning curve for her. And one of the things that he recommended, and at the time I thought he was like, you know, back ass words. I was like, what? But he said, tell her to take off her sunglasses when she goes outside. And if she's able to, you know, just to tilt her face up towards the sky. And I was like, can you just give me something that will help her? Like, you know, my intern know-it-all, you know, inner bossy, uh, you know, inner, you know, doctor. I was like, please like, give me something that's actually going to help. And of course it turns out that he was right on the money with that. It's super simple to do. Anybody can do it. And, you know, there's many things that can help depression, right? Like if you want a bigger dive onto that topic, you can go back and listen to my conversation with Dr. Kelly Brogan. Um, and we talk extensively about depression. We talk about, um, you know, the history of depression and all of that, but this is one of the simplest things. And, you know, just as a little side note, women in perimenopause, we tend to start noticing that we are more anxious or potentially more depressed as we move through our forties without really changing anything, right? Like nutrition seems to be the same. If anything, maybe we're a little bit more well-established. We have, you know, maybe we've achieved some of the goals that we've wanted in our lives and our hormones seem to be like blazing and barking mad. And one of the simplest things that you can do is actually expose yourself to this early morning light. So that is when we talk about improving your sleep, that is the number one piece of advice that I can, I can give to you. And it's free, right? It's like, you don't have to pay to, uh, to go outside, hopefully. Um, you know, there's no situation that I can think of where you have to pay to go outside. And, you know, depending on where you live in the world, you may need to modulate the, the, the time that you spend outside in those early hours um, in order to get that retinal stimulus that, um, that we've been discussing. 
Okay, so early morning light number one, numero uno. Let's talk about a couple of other um, pieces to help with your sleep. So there are, we've talked about this central regulator, right? This central circadian clock regulator called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It is like a, you know, one millimeter by one millimeter nucleus. It's really, really um, tiny. Sits right above the um, the chiasm or where the um, optic nerve crosses. That's why it's called suprachiasmatic. So above the chiasm or above the cross. So that's our central master regulator of sleep and wake in the brain, right? But we also have peripheral regulators. They're sometimes referred to as peripheral oscillators. So if you think of like a watch, you know, if you uh, if you sort of see the oscillation of the secondhand clock or whatever, that's what they're referring to. So it's peripheral oscillators um, that we can manipulate. And one of the main ones in the body is the liver. So we know that the liver is one of the main um, oscillators and that can that will, through its communication uh, to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, will help to govern and contribute to your wakefulness and your sleepiness. So every time that you eat, you know, you're sending a signal, right, to the brain, you know, via the liver that there's energy coming in and it's time to rev up the system so that we can make good use of this substrate of this food that's coming in, right? And ideally with your food timing, you know, this will happen throughout the day, right? Through your waking hours where you will eat, let's say at some point in the morning, maybe in the afternoon, and then uh, hopefully an earlier dinner or an earlier supper. When you eat too late in the day, this is when we start to affect our circadian clocks because, you know, the, the, as the food's coming in, your body will begin to rev up. Your liver's like, Hey brain, we gotta, we gotta like wake up the system because we have all this energy now that we need to use. And, you know, not to mention that if you're eating really late, Now you might be going to sleep on, you know, a full or semi-full stomach, which, you know, can cause, you know, reflux and among, you know, among other things like poor quality of sleep, which is what we're really after today. So as a general rule of thumb for controlling some of the peripheral oscillators, one of the strategies is to think about our food timing and specifically finishing your meals two to three hours before bedtime. So if you go to sleep like I do around 9 p.m. and, you know, I, I often think of um, there's this meme that I remember seeing online. It was like, you know, there our punishments as children have now become our luxuries as adults. And it was like nap time <laughs> and, and going to bed early. And I go, I go to sleep at nine. That's just, you know, nine, nine thirty. That's kind of my time. So if I'm sleeping at 9 p.m., that means that I'm generally going to have dinner with my kids. Uh, we generally eat at six. And that works actually really well for my kids too, because there have been times where I have not adhered to the schedule and I've been late from, you know, I was on a call with a client or, you know, work kept me late. So I've, you know, we ended up getting, you know, dinner on the table at like seven or even eight o'clock. And by that time, my kids are ravenous monsters. Like they have raided the pantry. They've eaten every single carby food that you might imagine, like all the bread, all the crackers, and they actually aren't hungry for proper nutrition anymore. So it works really well for where my children are right now to eat around 6 p.m. 
And for me, the way that I structure my eating. So if I know I'm finishing at six, you know, I tend to eat breakfast like maybe two hours after I work out, I tend to work out in the morning. I feel like I have a lot of energy um, in the morning, partly due to, I feel like I have a, an abundance of cortisol. So when I wake up, I'm like ready to go. And so I tend to lift very aggressively and very heavy um, in the morning. And I'll follow the workout, let's say with a post-workout meal. And then, you know, I'm ready for breakfast like two hours after that. And another modulator that we can talk about in terms of improving your sleep is exercise timing as well. So we've talked about early morning light. We've talked about timing your meals. Um, but I think it's also really important to talk about um, exercise. And, you know, many people report that if they work out too late in the day, and it's usually within that two to three hour window before they go to sleep, they have a really hard time uh, winding down and falling asleep. So when you are exercising, you can think about manipulating some of these exercise variables, right? Like the type of exercise that you engage in, the intensity, the duration, and of course, timing um, to your advantage. Now, I, I work out in the morning, as I've mentioned, um, there's a lot of science around the best times to work out. And often they will take into consideration, like when your core body temperature is at its optimal, when is the best time for injury prevention? I've talked about, uh, for women, um, the types of workouts that you do to coordinate with your menstrual cycle, if you're in your reproductive years, and I won't get into into that because it tends to cause a lot of panic, right? And people are like, oh, well, if the best time to work out is like 2 p.m., then I'm definitely not going to do my, you know, 7 a.m. workout. And like people end up missing their workouts. So whatever time works for you, just do it, right? So just... We, we, we don't want to focus too much on the timing, the optimal versus ideal time of, of workouts. But generally, the rule of thumb here is work out any time of the day with the exception of that two to three hour window before bedtime. And if that's your only time that you have to work out, then you might consider changing the intensity and the type uh, and the duration of the exercise that you do. We've talked about exercise timing. We've talked about food timing. We've talked about light in the early part of the day, but there's another time that the light is actually low and this is at sunset, right? So it's rises in the east, sets in the west, but we know that the sun is also very low in the, you know, call it, you know, depending on where you are, it's going to be late afternoon into the evening, right? And when we think about the effects of viewing sun, the sunset light, as opposed to the sunrise light, again, I'm talking about this with the assumption that you're not looking at it from your window, but you're actually out in nature. What this does is it will help to, um, prevent some of the effects of excess blue light exposure in the evening. So whether that's coming from your TV or your phone or whatever, um, by preventing um, the melatonin release later that night. So let, let me, let me kind of re-say that. So when we wake up and we see light in the beginning of the day. This is primarily blue light and we need a big dose of it because our retina is relatively insensitive earlier in the morning. It becomes 
more sensitive as the day goes on. And what that means is if you are on your computer or your phone or what have, what have you, you're on zoom calls or whatever late into the day, you are going to prevent melatonin release from the pineal gland, which is a melatonin is a, uh, I call it the hormone of, of darkness because it is secreted, um, in a dark environment. But if you are able to view sunset light. So getting out in nature, you know, if, if it's available to you to have your sunglasses off, taking off your sunglasses, um, that will help to prevent some of the blue light effects later in the day. So it doesn't completely correct things. It doesn't give you um, that big, you know, jolt to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, but it can prevent you from that um, excessive blue light stimulation to the retinal ganglion cells later in the day. Now, the other piece, and this will be the last sort of trick, if you will, or or strategy that I'll leave you with, um, is supplementation. So my hope is that, and and I've put these in order of my preference here. So I've talked about early morning light because I think that that's the most important. Um, I've talked about exercise, uh, food timing, because I think that's the second most important exercise timing sunset. And if those you know, four options now have been exhausted for you, then we can come into supplementation. Okay. So the first one, the first supplement that I really, really love, especially for my perimenopausal women, um, is magnesium. Now there are many, many types of magnesium. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Carrie Jones on the podcast about magnesium and it's plus one. It's always like a magnesium. And then there's always a name behind it. But there's one in particular that I want to highlight, and that is magnesium three and eight. So this is a relatively new form of of magnesium, and it's one that can cross the blood brain barrier. So one of the things that we really like about uh, magnesium three and eight, there's a couple of different things. One is that um, it Uh, has been shown to reduce the risk of age-related memory loss and cognitive decline. Uh, It can improve uh, learning and memory. Uh, It has been shown to help diminish symptoms of hyperactivity or anxiety. And this is really important for my perimenopausal ladies because what I noticed, and I wrote about this in the book, is that there seems to be this inverse relationship between nighttime and, you know, between light and anxiety, such that as it becomes evening, our anxiety, for whatever reason, goes through the roof. And magnesium three and eight can help it has positive effects, um, on our sleepiness, on our ability to stay asleep vis-a-vis a a neurotransmitter called GABA, G-A-B-A, which helps to turn down the anxiety, right? It's how progesterone actually keeps us calm as well, right? It's via GABA. It turns down the anxiety, the overthinking, um, that many women I, I see struggling, um, in the evening. Now, if this is something, um, that you want to explore, um, I've linked the, uh, the, the supplement that I, uh, that I just purchased on Amazon in the show notes. I have no affiliation with this company. It's, or this, this particular product, it's just the one that I use. And 
just keeping on magnesium for a moment, there's another form that I want to highlight, and this is um, magnesium sulfate. And this is the kind that is found in Epsom salt baths. And it is usually, when we look at magnesium sulfate, this has an elemental concentration of like 10% lower. It has lower levels of bioavailability than let's say magnesium glycinate or threonate. Um, it contains magnesium and, and sulfate, which is just like sulfur and oxygen. And when we add it to the bath water, right, in the form of Epsom salts, it can help to reduce muscle pain, promote relaxation. Um, I don't often recommend it uh, to be taken uh, internally, but um, it can be used internally as a laxative. And I love this as a trick for improving your sleep because it is, it's sort of manipulating two variables that are related to sleep. One is obviously the magnesium concentration, which helps with that GABA uh, activation. But the other uh, variable that it manipulates is your core body temperature. So when you, we haven't talked about core body temperature um, today, but generally when we think about sleep and the circadian rhythm of our core body temperature, it tends to fall in the evening, right? We tend to sleep in environments that are colder. I talk about this in the Betty body. And then in the early hours of the morning, we start to see our core body temperature rise. So from about the time of like somewhere between two and four in the morning, we start to see this slow increase in our core body temperature such that we will rise, like it'll be, will sort of be warm enough that it, it wakes us up. And this is why my menopausal women and, and some of my perimenopausal women will complain of sleep disturbances um, because they're having these hot flashes sometimes overnight and the heat will prematurely bring them out of that lowered core body temperature. So they're like sweating and they're like soaking their sheets and they wake up and it makes it very uncomfortable for them to fall back asleep again. So when you take a hot bath or actually a hot hot sauna for that matter, um, in the hours before bedtime, you are going to experience a rebound effect in your temperature. So in other words, your body is going to work to cool down much quicker after this uh, prolonged heat stimulus. Okay. So I really hope, like, I do not, let me just say this. I do not want sleep to become this like perverse, overly complicated endeavor, right? There are many techniques that I, that I talk about, um, in the Betty body, um, that are in addition to what we've talked about here, but what we've talked about here is a super solid start, right? And sleep is one of the most natural things in the world. It is our, in our design to have this glorious, restful sleep. So what I've done for you is I've linked in the show notes, you know, the products that I've mentioned, whether it's the Epsom salts or the three and eight. Um, so if you're curious, you can absolutely um, check them out and just start experimenting, right? Um, tomorrow, maybe try to go out in the sunlight as early as you can. And the window doesn't count, but you have to go actually out in nature. Um, and just like, let that beautiful star work its magic on your, on your retinal ganglion cells and your central clock and your sleep. And I'd love to know how it's going. I want you to tag me, um, on Instagram. Let me know, uh, take a picture of you sitting out maybe in your backyard or on your balcony, um, looking towards the sun. And if you want, use the hashtag becoming Betty, because this is one of the solid foundational habits that we can do that will have knock-on effects 
everywhere. It's going to help your metabolism, your body composition, your mood, your hot flashes, your skin, your hair, like all the things like good sleep helps everything. So with that, I bid you adieu and I will see you here next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.